Father in heaven, today we're, we're going to look at some difficult things, but they're very practical. We know that, that they're deep. They're what the Bible would refer to as the deep things of you. So we really need to pay attention. And I pray we will. I pray that you'll make us all listeners. And I pray, Father, that you'll make me a communicator of biblical truth. But I pray more than anything that your spirit will do the teaching today. And as we hear what you have to share with us, I pray that it lands someplace within us that we will never forget because we'll need to call this back up at some point, either on our behalf or on behalf of other people. So I pray that you will tuck it away for us that we might always remember, that we might always be able to use this, that we might never forget what matters most. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get started. Would you take a look at this quote from Wikipedia? In 1968, the United States was marked by several major historical events. It is often considered to be one of the most turbulent and traumatic years of the 20th century. The Wikipedia site goes on to list a number of things that would fit underneath that, particularly the turbulent and traumatic part of it. But Smithsonian Magazine carries an article much like this, and I like the way they tell it a little bit better. Some of the things that they call out really cause us to understand the depth of this statement and the truth of it. Part of the way that their article starts sets the stage like this. It was traumatic and turbulent because there were more lows than highs in 1968. And they start out by telling us, some of the lows. Things like this. The Tet Offensive was launched by the North Vietnamese against the United States and her allies during 1968. At the same time, the USS Pueblo was captured by the North Koreans and the sailors that were aboard that ship spent the better part of that year being tortured and starved by the North Koreans. It was a difficult year. There were some other things going on as well, though. That was the year that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, as was Robert F. Kennedy. And the list just goes on and on and on of the low points of 1968. But they weren't all low. There were also some high points like this. That's the year that the Apollo 7 mission was launched. They achieved, NASA did, a soft landing on the moon in 1968. The Apollo 8 missions also flew during that year, and they were the first to orbit the moon. We know that there were some other pretty amazing things like the expansion of the National Park System, with Redwood National Park being established in 1968. Outside of the United States, there were great things going on in the realm of medical science. The third recorded heart transplant took place that year. And as a result of that, medical science seemed to be catapulted forward from that point on with new advancements coming one right after the other. But my guess is the highest points of 1968 happened in August and September of that year when I was born and Tina was born, respectively. <laughs> that, that's the year we were both born. Now there's a reason that I take you back through all of this ancient history. No offense, hon. As I take you back through all of this ancient history. When we look at what happened in any particular year, we gain context for things that were said during that time or things that came out of that time period. That's true historically 
And it is true biblically. When we look at what was happening at any given time, we can understand the writings of the Bible in a different way because we have context. In the Old Testament, people will come to the minor prophets and they'll start reading in Hosea and Joel and Obadiah and Habakkuk and they'll read words that are incredibly confusing and seem to make no sense. And the reason that's happening is you don't have context. You don't know what was happening during the time that the prophets were writing. So if you'll go back into the historical books and gain the context, then the minor prophets will begin to make sense. But we can also do the same thing in the New Testament. There are places where we read that we need context in order to truly understand the depth of what's being taught. And this is where we're going to become Bible nerds together this morning. My salt group would tell you that we spin out on things like this all the time. In fact, this last week we were nerding out in our salt group and I'm having a blast with it. I don't know if other people are, but I'm having a blast. It's the kind of stuff that gives me goosebumps when I read the Bible and I see these types of connections. But it requires some deep study in order to get there. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start in the book of James. If you have your Bible open, go to chapter 1 and join me in verse 9. We're just going to read three verses out of this, starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, let's be nerds together. If you have your Bible open, take a look at your introductory study notes or possibly even in the margin of your Bible right at the beginning of the book. There should be something that calls out the date that this book was written. And there are a number of different philosophies. Now let me illustrate it for you this way. I pray with a group of guys on Sunday morning before our first service begins. We've been doing that for 17 years. Love that time together. We also do some Bible study in that as we just open up to different things that we'll be studying in the message and we dig into it. Well, this morning I wanted to lab or experiment this whole idea. So I asked them with study Bibles on their lap to go and find the date, whether that was in the introductory notes or in the margin. One guy sitting to my left said that in his Bible, it said that the book of James was written in the mid to late 40s, dated before the year 50 A.D. Across the room, one of the fellows said in his Bible, it is dated at the early 60s. Now, follow that. That is incredibly significant. Then the third fellow said in his Bible, it gave credit to both of those dates, possibly written in the mid to late 40s or possibly written in the early 60s prior to James's death. But it also said a third possibility. The book of James could have been written in the year 150 A.D. Now that's heresy, and here's why. Because we know that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this book. He died in the year 62 A.D. 
It is impossible for him to have written the book in 150 A.D. So when we know who the author is, if it is credited to them after their death, having been written after their death, that means that somebody else wrote it. An imposter wrote it. And the church fathers threw out that idea a long time ago when they credited James with the authorship of this book. So it is heresy to say that it would have been written in the year 150 A.D. That would put it in the realm of what is referred to as a pseudepigraphal book, and they are heretical. So there is no way that that could be the case. So that left us with these two other dates. It was written in the mid to late 40s, or the early 60s. Now here's why that is so significant. If it was written in the early 60s, remember James died in the year 62 AD. He was martyred in the city of Jerusalem. We know that historical accounts match everything we know about the Bible. He died in 62 AD. During the time that Nero was emperor of Rome, Now, if he wrote it in the mid to late 40s, it would have been during the time that Claudius was the emperor of Rome. And this is where it gets crazy significant. Keep your finger there in James chapter 1, but join me in Acts chapter 11. Verse 27. Acts chapter 11. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of of Barnabas and Saul. In parentheses is one of the most significant things that we will find for the dating of the book of James. Take a look again because most of us would skip right over this. We just wouldn't even pay attention to it. But you need to because it is crazy significant. Here it is again. This took place in the days of Claudius. That means prior to 50 A.D., Now, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He had taken over that position when James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred, one of the first martyrs of the church. And then James, the brother of Jesus, took over the leadership of that. Now, you know, as we've been in this study, that James was not an apostle. He was the half-brother of Jesus. But he became the leader of the largest church in the known world, the largest Christian church. And all of that happened roughly 12 years after the establishment of the church. And 12 years after the establishment of the early church, the Bible says that a famine was coming and it was going to hit the entire world, but it was really going to hit Jerusalem very hard, very hard. So let's go back to James chapter 1 and follow me through the nerding parts of this. Here we go. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Okay. When we started this whole study out, I skipped over that part on purpose. I saved it for today. And this is why. 
In Acts chapter 8, we read about this dispersion. It happened after Stephen was martyred, after Stephen was stoned. And all of that happened because a zealous Pharisee named Saul had come into Jerusalem and he was persecuting the church. Stephen stood up and, man, did he ever preach to the Sanhedrin. And Saul got his hands on him, pulled him outside of the city gates, and with a group of people around him, they hurled rocks at Stephen until he died. And then Saul turned his attention towards this large church, this large group of believers in Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 8 tells us that they dispersed out of Jerusalem. Many of these people that had come to Jerusalem during Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, left and went home now. It's called the dispersion or the diaspora. They left Jerusalem and they went home and they took the gospel with them. That's just one of the ways that God will spread the gospel. He had to scatter his people. So he did through the dispersion. So all of these people left Jerusalem, which meant they left their church, which James was the pastor of. And then seemingly a disaster struck the area that caused him to want to write to all of those people and bring encouragement to them. Think about how the book of James starts. There is no warm greeting that says, hope you're doing well. There's no, hope this finds you doing good. Tell me how the family is. He does not start that way at all. We find out who he is and who he is writing to, and then he jumps right in with this type of teaching. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so the man of God may be complete, not lacking anything. And then once he has set that stage, he builds on it by saying, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you seek wisdom, because that's going to be the most important thing to you. You seek wisdom. He's coming right out of the chutes, moving fast. He is bringing encouragement to them because something has happened. Something has touched all of them. They have dispersed and gone all over the place. And James is writing the exact same thing to them. So what do you think that might have been? A famine. A famine. That's the only thing that makes any sense. Thus dating the book based on James chapter 1 verses 9 through 12, dating the book somewhere in the mid to late 40s. Now you might think, gosh, did that really happen? I am so glad you have questions like that. And I am glad you're willing to ask. Here's what we know. There was an early historian in the nation of England. In fact, really before England was a nation, that studied the rise of the British Empire. And he started in the year 1 AD, particularly tracking things for the first thousand years, to 1154 AD. His name is Orosius. Orosius's research and everything that he wrote became incredibly important to the British colonies, became incredibly important to their nation. In the Middle Ages, King Alfred took Orosius' writings and translated them into English, and then they were used in what's known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle simply chronicles the rise of this empire. And when he translated everything into English, we got access to all of Orosius' writings. Here's an excerpt. Take a look. In 46 A.D., 
In this year, Claudius, the second Roman emperor to invade Britain, put much of the island under his control and added the Orkneys to Rome's kingdom. This took place in the fourth year of his rule. In this same year, a great famine in Syria took place, which Luke mentions in his book, The Acts of the Apostles. Due to his incompetence, the emperor Claudius Nero almost lost control of the British Isle. 46 AD. In this year, the emperor Claudius invaded Britain and conquered much of the island. The island of Orkney was also added to his empire. 47 AD. In this year, the evangelist Mark began to write his gospel in Egypt, also in 47 AD. During the fourth year of his rule, there was a great famine in Syria, which Luke mentions in his book, The Acts of the Apostles, 47 AD. In this year, Claudius, ruler of the Romans, invaded Britain with an army and took control of the island, and Roman rule was forced on all the Picts and the Welsh. And so now we know that in 46 and 47 AD, a famine hit the whole area during, are you ready for this, Claudius's reign. And that's what was in parentheses. It hit the whole area. And now we have James writing a book of encouragement to all of the Christians that had dispersed out of Jerusalem and gone to all these other places. Many of them left without spiritual leadership, but they would receive his letter with all of the encouragement that it contains, all of the practical encouragement. So a group of scholars would tell you that this book has to be dated during that time because of the three verses that we just read, verses 9 through 12, because this famine hit them in such a way that everybody was affected. And James calls out the poor and the lowly, and he calls out the rich. It touched everybody. This was a disaster of national impact. It was natural in nature so that it would touch everyone. It wasn't just a personal disaster. Well, that sets the stage for another question. Why would God do that? Just 12, 13 years after the establishment of this young church, why would God allow a famine to come? Agabus brought a prophecy fueled by the Spirit that said this was coming. God knew it. Why wouldn't he save his people from this type of a disaster? Why wouldn't he block this from happening? Why would God do it? Well, maybe just maybe the answer to that is found in the famines of the Bible. As we go back and study them, every one of them had a purpose. Natural disasters had a purpose. They were there to test the people of God. Do you remember just a tiny little one tucked away, a lot of people have never heard of it, called the flood? (laughs) The flood happened, natural disaster that covered the entire world, and only eight people responded to God's warning. It was a warning, a test, to see who would stand on the right side, and only eight people passed the test. The rest of them were destroyed. As you move on from the flood in Genesis chapter 6, you'll find very quickly a famine that struck the land right after Abraham sojourned his way into the Holy Land. As soon as he got there, a famine came. And do you know what Abraham did? He left. God told him to come to Canaan. He would provide for him. Famine hit. Abraham left. He went to Egypt where he became a liar and almost lost his wife. God had to intervene and clean that mess up and get Abraham back to where he was supposed to be. 
Study on in the the book of Genesis and you'll come to the famine that hit during the time of Jacob. Jacob was living in the Holy Land. The famine hit. This time it led to different results. It led to reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness and the reforming of a family group. And amazing, miraculous things happened because Jacob remained where he was supposed to be but sent his sons looking for help and they found Joseph. The famine had a different result. Famines were always given to test, to see where people would stand. When things get really bad, the Lord needs to know if your faith is true, and so do you. So famines come. Natural disasters come to test faith. It can be hard to understand that, but it's true. I want to show you one of the most pointed famines in the Old Testament. Go with me to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. This one was bad. You're going to see how, just like in the, the book of James, famines can touch the rich and the poor. How they will level a playing field unlike most any other disaster. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for eighty shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? from the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. The city walls were closed up. The gates were shut. There was no one coming in or going out. They were under siege and a famine hit the city. The king was walking along the wall and you you heard how bad it is. He had no way of helping his people. The famine was so heinous that they were boiling the heads of donkeys to eat them. And the people that had no money left and couldn't afford a donkey's head They were eating the excrement of doves, making a soup and a paste out of it. That's all they had to eat. And for those that couldn't do that, it was so vile they were eating their children. They were eating their children. We had a group of ladies in Washington, D.C. this last week that were participating in the March for Life, so proud of what they were doing, so proud that we were there. They were there standing on behalf of the unborn. Well, there were people in Samaria that were having to stand on behalf of the children that were at risk. And the king, heartbroken because he had nothing that he could offer, says to him, what do you want me to do about this? What do you want me to do? As this woman's crying out to her saying, she cheated me, now she won't give us her son today so that we can eat him. He said, you want me to go to the threshing floor and get you something from there? There's nothing there. Do you want me to go to the wine press and get you something from there? There's nothing there. He had sackcloth on, covered himself in ashes, walking along the wall, knowing that unless God intervened, there was no hope. He was just going to watch his people one by one die. 
That was the only option. But then God shows up. Chapter 7. I love this part. The other part is, man, that's tough. But I love this part. These are some of my favorite Old Testament characters. I've introduced them to you before. We've studied them before. I just, I love these guys. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over into the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made that army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went in and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Now, if the famine was bad inside the city, it was worse for these lepers. They lived in exile outside of the city gates because of their illness. The only food that they received were the scraps that were in the the dump. When people brought their trash out and threw it away, they were able to pick through it and find something to eat. Nobody had any trash. There were no scraps. These guys were starving. So as bad as it was inside the city, it was worse outside the city. And did you hear what these four guys did? Now this is, this is cool stuff. Remember, famines come to test us. And it's four lepers. It is four lepers that rise to the occasion. Even when the king has nothing to offer and nobody inside the city has anything to offer, four lepers living in exile rise to the top. They are the cream in this pot. Listen to what they say. If we stay where we're at, we will die. If we go back into the city, we will die. So let's move forward. What's the worst thing that could happen? We but die. Don't you just love that? I mean, that, that's just, that is faith right there. Let's, I've done this with you before, but let's do it again because it's fun. Just follow through what they say. Do this with me. If we stay where we are at, we will die. If we go back into the city, we will so let's move forward. What's the worst that could happen? We but, but we also just might live. So they went forward. They went forward. And when they went into the camp of the Syrians, what they found was amazing. Number one, God by His Spirit had already driven them out. There were no enemy soldiers there. They were gone. When they went into their tents and they started looking around, They found silver and gold and and all that. But what they found that was more exciting than the silver and the gold and all the treasure, they found food. And not just enough food for themselves, but enough food for everyone inside the city gates. And at first they thought to themselves, we'll keep it for ourselves. But then the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they realized that was wrong. So they went back and they told the king what was happening and the king didn't believe them, thought they were crazy because remember, he's walking the city gate saying there is no help and they just brought him the craziest idea of help he had ever heard. So he sent some scouts out to see if these lepers had lost their minds as well as their bodies and they came back with camels and donkeys and horses loaded with provision. 
And God intervened. And God intervened. It took four lepers to show them once again who God was. Famines come. Natural disasters come to test us. And that's what it appears James was writing about. When you look at the progression of how he starts his book, consider it pure joy, seek wisdom, because the time is upon us when the rich have lost everything and the poor have lost even more. You're going to need wisdom to remind you of faith. And in verse 12 he says, you hold on for the crown of life. You hold on for the crown of life because that's what matters. More than anything else, that's what matters. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. In the midst of this famine, don't you give up. Your faith is being tested. Let's see what rises to the top. It is so interesting that he makes it as practical as he does by talking about monetary issues. Reminding the rich and even the poor that if your hope is in money, it can disappear in the blink of an eye, in the snap of a finger. If your hope is in money, it will not stand. So you have to make sure that your hope is in the right place, which is in God. You want to know why he had to do that? Because in the face of natural disasters, people have normal reactions. I want to prove that to you, just so you don't have to take my word for it. Last year, the university in British Columbia finished up a multi-year study of what happens to people of faith during natural disasters. They just released their findings a few months ago. Here's what they discovered. The study found that for every 1% increase in casualties in a disaster that hurt a large number of people, there was a corresponding 4% jump in religious service attendance by people of faith. Anybody remember 9-11? All those folks lost their lives. Churches were packed that night. It was a Tuesday. They were packed on Tuesday night. And they remained packed for two weeks. For two weeks. And then people's memories began to fade and they started to fade out of church following those memories. This proves it. Moving on. Meanwhile, for every 1% increase in the financial cost of a disaster that did major economic damage, there was a 2% decrease in the probability of religious people believing in God. For every 1% increase in the total number of natural disasters, he found belief in God among survey respondents dropped a whopping 26%. Isn't that crazy? So if it involves the loss of life or health or it touches a person very physically, people are drawn closer to God for a brief period of time. But if it involves financial disaster, they run away. They run away. And as natural disasters increase, the study shows that a whopping 26% of believers, of faith-based people, run from those times. Is it any wonder that James has to write the way he does? Because Jesus, his brother, had given this warning and it is one that we have to hold on to. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the more natural disasters are going to increase as God continues testing his people. This is found in Matthew chapter 24, long section on the return of Jesus, the second coming. Verses 7 and 8 read, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
That's biblical teaching that tells us as we are seeing a documented increase in natural disasters in our society today, it simply means we're getting closer to the return of Christ. And the encouragement that James would pour out on these people that he loved is the same encouragement that we need to hear. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Whatever you do, you seek wisdom because the time will come when a disaster will touch your life and you have to make sure that your hope is in the right place and it certainly isn't in money because that disaster can take it away. It can take it away. Whether it is a natural disaster, whether it is a personal disaster, whether it is an economic disaster, whether it is a spiritual disaster, emotional, relational, doesn't matter. When it comes, your faith will be tested and you have to be able to stand the test. You have to be able to stand the test. Whatever the case, you have to be able to stand the test and hold on for the crown of life. It is of the utmost importance. And that's why James would talk so pointedly that the rich have lost everything. Money is here today and it is gone tomorrow. Don't make that the point of your faith and your hope. That follows other teaching in the Bible as well. Just listen to this from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19-21. through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or maybe you need to hear this also from the mouth of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And if none of that resonates with you, then maybe this illustration from the Gospel of Luke will. It's one of the parables of Jesus. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on us and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Those who have put their hope in money receive their just rewards right here in this life. But when this life is over, if that's where your faith was unto salvation, that's it, that's the end, that's the end. But if your faith is in God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, your reward waits for you. That's what James was teaching in James chapter 1, verse 12. You hold on for the crown of life. You stand the test. Money can be taken away, but the crown of life will remain, so you hold on for it. You hold on until it's placed on your head. Whatever you do, you hold on. Well, I told you as we got started in this study, 
the book of James is the most practical book that leads us into practical understanding of Scripture. And I want to show you how that works because at some point you will face disaster. You will. We all will. In this world, we will have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We have to follow His path. So I want to give you five things that will help you draw near to Him in the face of that. Some of these begin in James's teaching. Some of the others will launch us out. But here they are, five things. Take a look. Number one, remember that trials come and go. We've already talked a lot about that. That's why James started the way he did. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. They will come. So don't be taken by surprise. They will come. Number two, your attitude matters. That's why he says consider it pure joy. He didn't say walk around scratching the dirt when trials come. He didn't say pout and whine and cry. He said consider it pure joy because your attitude matters. You remember our four leper friends back in 2 Kings? Going to move forward. Got to move forward. Because staying where we're at is not an option. Got to move forward. So attitude matters in the face of disaster. Whatever that disaster might be, attitude matters. Number three, hold earthly things loosely. John chapter 12. Let me take you there and and, uh, share this with you. John chapter 12, starting in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus' teaching there is to hold on to the things of this earth and this world loosely, but hold on tight to the things of God. You hold on tight to the things of God. Particularly in the face of disaster, you hold on tight to the things of God. Number four, make sure that money remains a tool, not a God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 has some great teaching from Jesus on this very issue. Listen again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Doesn't get more practical or pointed than that. You cannot serve God and money. So make sure that money remains a tool in your life. By the way, a lot of people have taught that money is the root of all evil. That is not what Scripture says. The Bible teaches that the love of money is the root of all evil. So make sure that you keep it in the right perspective. If money is a tool for you to glorify the Lord, you got it in the right place. Keep it in the right perspective. If it is the thing that you hang your faith on, when it disappears, what are you going to do? Because God will never disappear. You hold on to Him. Number five, Keep an eternal perspective by remembering every disaster we face is a sign of Jesus' imminent return. And we already read from Matthew chapter 24. As they increase all around us, we are getting closer and closer to the second coming, which means we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 reads like this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you fix your eyes on Jesus. 
When you hear reports of disasters, you fix your eyes on Jesus. When those disasters touch your life, you fix your eyes on Jesus. You consider the great cloud of witnesses that have already walked through it and fix your eyes on Jesus. It's the way to navigate those difficult moments. You fix your eyes on Jesus no matter what. Those five things will help you keep your perspective in such a place that when disaster strikes, you will draw near to God instead of being in the 2% that push away from God. And then the next 2%, and the next 2%, and the next 2%. You draw near and let your faith remain strong until the crown of life is placed on your head. As the worship team is making their way up here, I want to jump out of the book of James and just share with you three things from the Apostle Paul that helps us out in moments like this. They're all found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Three things. Number one, remember what God has done for you. We call that salvation. He made that possible through His Son. He made that possible through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's how salvation became possible for us. God did it. Jesus did it. That's what He did for us. But there is also this other side of what He is doing in us. We call that sanctification. It is the process of removing everything that is ungodly from us so that the godly can shine. Sanctification is a process. It is something that we work on our entire life. And sometimes God has to use the most unexpected, strange things to make that happen, like natural disasters, like famines. They are a part of the whittling process that bring about the sanctification that He is after so that your Christ-likeness will shine through. When we get into a study like this in James chapter 1, it's all about sanctification. He's writing to the people that are saved, but He is trying to give you some tools that will help in the sanctifying process of the Spirit in your life. So you hold on to those things because they lead you to the third one what God does through us. And we call that service. That's how we use our lives for His sake. Three things are always at work. What God does for us, and once you've accepted that in salvation, then begins the second one, what God does in us. That's sanctification. That's where we draw near to God. Or worse, we run away from Him and we deny sanctification. And then there's service. What God does through us. Sometimes famines are there to determine all three. 